Happy Friday, everybody. Kevin McDonald here, executive producer of New Mexico in Focus. Hope you've had an outstanding week. It's been a busy one for sure for us here with the show. Of course, the week started out with the Martin Luther King Jr. Day events and remembrances. And then Tuesday was the official start of the 2020 legislative session. Of course, it all kicked off with the State of the State speech, which we were proud to bring to you live on Channel 5.1. And if you missed that, it's not too late. We've got that up on our YouTube, Facebook pages, or you could just head to NewMexicoInFocus.org and check that out. While you're there, also check out the annotated copy of the speech. It has a lot of great insights from journalists who cover the Roundhouse. They joined us from all over the state to offer insight and context and even some fact-checking. So I encourage you to check that out. All right, in this podcast, you're going to start out with the state of the state. You're going to hear some highlights of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's speech and as well some analysis and insight that was given to us right after the speech by a group of former lawmakers, special line opinion roundtable. There was former Senator Dede Feldman and Eric Griego, also former state representatives Dan Foley and Justine Fox Young. A lot of really interesting things about how they see the governor's approach changing in year two. And of course, education reform will be a huge thing this year. We have plenty on that this week. It starts with Gwyneth Dolan. She went up to the Roundhouse on Wednesday to talk to lawmakers about a couple things. The first was fiscal responsibility and what exactly that means in a year when lawmakers have about $800 million more million to work with. That's the estimate anyway. Education reform will chew up a lot of that. So she talks to them about how they stay fiscally responsible. Also, talk to some lawmakers about some concerns that have been raised with the Children, Youth, and Family Division of state government and whether or not they are abiding by the Open Meetings Act. So that's a great segment you'll hear as well, followed up with more education reform talk with a representative from Transform Education New Mexico. This is a group that came together after the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit, which of course found that the state was not living up to its constitutional obligation to provide a quality education for all New Mexico students. And we wanted to get their thoughts on the governor's state of the state speech and the current approach to education reform. So some interesting insights there about where they think we're hitting the mark as a state and where we still have work to do. Lastly, lots of government this week, but there was a report that recently came out put together by New Mexico Ethics Watch all about the influence of lobbyists in the state, as well as the reporting of their expenses and things like that. And so Kathleen Sabo, she's the executive director of New Mexico Ethics Watch. She sat down with Matt Grubb, senior producer, to talk about what the report found and help you understand a little bit more how the lobbyist process works. So we hope you enjoy the podcast this week. Let us know what you'd like us to be talking about. You can find us lots of different places. Of course, the website, NewMexicoInFocus.org, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Just search for New Mexico in Focus or NM in Focus, and you'll find us. We'd love to hear from you. At the close of year one, and at the outset of year two, state government, in addition, is stronger and we are gathering strength. Our December statewide rapid hire events drew 3,700 job seekers. That's 3,700 New Mexicans eager to work, eager to serve their communities and neighbors right now. Together, we delivered meaningful raises for New Mexico educators passionate about their students. I agree. 
we should be celebrating. And I hope this speech, even though I'm off script, feels like that celebration. Because we also launched pivotal transformations in environmental leadership and long overdue infrastructure. Our Children, Youth, and Families Department this year cut the average wait time on its child abuse hotline from an unconscionable hour plus to less than five minutes. Our Human Services Department settled with each of the behavioral health providers ejected from the state by the Martinez administration. A monumental step towards the robust and rebuilt behavioral health system now New Mexico urgently needs. We took the initiative on building up state's reserves for a future rainy day. We made sure we have an equitable framework for reforming our state pension system in a way that protects New Mexico taxpayers and respects retirees, both current and future. We boosted common sense oversight of polluters, and we put New Mexico on a direct path to being the nation's clean energy leader, ensuring our land, air, and water, our inheritance. As residents of the state, incredible state, are passed on to future generations. We brought industry and environmental leaders together, and we are moving forward on creating nation-leading rules that will curb methane pollution, create jobs, and deliver more dollars into New Mexico classrooms. We took on the Trump administration when they abandoned border communities, when they tried to gain access to our workforce data so they could deport working parents and tear families apart. And with your help, we will keep up those efforts, up those good fights, and we will keep investing for a bright tomorrow while delivering solutions to the urgent needs of today. The momentum from the first year, how much of that did you hear? Meaning, it seems like she has some hand here, the old Seinfeld uh, joke. She has some hand here. She proved a point in some areas year one. Is it enough to carry through this aggressiveness for, for year two? I think that um, definitely, um, I think she had some pretty strong um, points on, you know, how the economy and jobs have sort of turned around. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she didn't elaborate that a lot of that is oil and gas production, right? right? I mean, a lot of these jobs coming in are, frankly, in the oil and gas sector. And I think that that's the, you know, we've called it the Sophie's, Sophie's Choice, Faustian Choice, whatever, you know, this decision we've made to perpetuate, um, I think, a pretty deep dependence on oil and gas in the state. And um, that, get, that means that she and the legislature have a lot of new money to work with to do things that we've been wanting to do for generations now. But the, the fundamental, uh, you know, Choice is still there. Our, mm -hmm. You know, um, we, we're we're taking all this new money. Um, you know, we're, we're, and now we're going to have we're going to see a debate over the next thirty days. This is a tax and budget session about oh, what's the best way to to use that money. And as Justine said, you know, some of that's creating these trust funds, which really are sort of like spending the money, but really kind of setting it aside. So the one of the big uh, to Didi's point, uh, one of the big course corrections I think was this, the, the the governor had previously supported the constitutional amendment to take 1% out of the, the you know, almost $20 billion permanent fund right. and put that into early childhood for a real investment in early childhood. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she, ha she hasn't talked about that. I think she may not even be supporting that anymore. And now this new idea of taking $320 million and putting it, sort of setting aside, mm -hmm. which is really not spending it, and then drawing some of that money down, uh, you know, not insignificant, but certainly not adequate amount of money we talked about before. Mm -hmm. 
uh, into early childhood. I think that's a big uh, change in direction from what she had been saying last session. And I think that's a political reality for her, uh, working with a very conservative Senate finance chairman, uh, John Arthur Smith, sure. whose support she needs right. for all these other initiatives. And he sort of looked the other way on some of the big spending that, that she's proposed, which a lot of folks, uh, including myself, support in terms of investing in education and others. But I think there is a, there's a little bit of a compromise she has made on early childhood, mm -hmm. uh, despite all those sort of really um, talk of really making major investments in it. Really, the truth is like we continue to underfund early childhood. And the other thing I'll say, Gene, is mm -hmm. there was no talk in this speech about about tax reform or any of the tax proposals, which was surprising given this is a tax and budget session. And that's a that's a totally germane to the session. And it's really what we need to get to is how are we going to diversify these revenues so that we, so that we move away from dependence on oil and gas right. revenues. Good points there. Senator Feldman, let me continue with education. That was her first main priority after talking about what we'd had accomplished. That's right. Now she's saying the moonshot continues, maybe second stage just to continue the joke. But what did you hear? I didn't hear anything about teacher raises. That was well. There was a lot, but they. Well, remember last time, last mm -hmm. session, uh, we we increased education funding, which is half of our budget, right. by I think five hundred million dollars. Right. And this, and it mostly went for teacher salary increases, some after school programs. Uh, this year, there's still a request for two hundred. A million dollars. That's not chump change. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, in addition, there are these other uh, other uh, bookends of public education, which is the early childhood trust fund, right. which I agree is a very smart move on the part of the governor, um, and also the um, the uh, scholar the uh, tuition free college. Right. Uh, for all students who want to go to both trade schools, state schools, mm -hmm. uh, universities, uh, junior colleges in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the two new things in terms of education. I think they're both kind of halfway steps. Um, I think that um, having the early childhood uh, trust fund gives folks an out from uh, the nine years that the uh, advocates have tried to tap into the permanent fund mm -hmm. without success. Mm -hmm. So this is a halfway measure, but it's a halfway measure that looks like it's going to, uh, going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and it may not be enough uh, to really address the what, 122,000 um, kids under five that need real help, right. um, but uh, it's a start. Uh, it's better start than we have today. Mm -hmm. On the early childhood, so I want to be clear. I I, I didn't. Th I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's um, both the department creating the department and creating a fund that is really going to really capitalize very little investment in early childhood. I, I want to. I, I want to say that that's a departure for the governor. There's a lot of folks who really were hoping that she would and had previously supported the constitutional amendment, which is a real investment. That's two hundred million dollars. As Didi said, there's 120,000 plus kids under under five in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and to really mm -hmm. invest anywhere near what they need, like 25 million, isn't going to do it. I know it's hard for people to deal with these numbers because there's a lot of numbers, but you need a significant investment. We we put 500 million into K-12. That's the kind of investment we need to make in in little kids. Right. And so I do think that this is very much both the department and the trust fund 
if they're not fully funded, and early childhood is not fully funded, I do think they're going to be seen as, as distractions, as diversions, and even undermining this idea to fully fund early childhood. So I do think it was a political compromise. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I personally don't think it's going to get to where we need to be for kids. Mm -hmm. It might be politically expedient. It might have got John Arthur Smith on board, who's really right. been the obstacle. But I actually think it's not good policy for the, for the 120,000 kids. Uh, Dan, Eric just uh, anticipated a question I wanted to ask you about that. Was it more, is it more, just like he said, he's the governor calling her shot to have something palatable versus what she really wants to get at and what's best for kids out there. And then your opinion, of course, I'm interested in on the amount of money that we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as you and I joke all the time, Gene, I mean, we could have a gazillion dollars and that's still not enough. I mean, you, you guys want to, you want to fund everything and we talk about it at the table. Mm -hmm. um, I think the governor is running into the buzzsaw of reality, mm -hmm. right? Yes, we want to do this, 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 and well, there's only so much money we can do. Then, most importantly, you got to figure out how do you get the votes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how great the plan is. If you can't get the number of people to pass it, clearly they got the votes in the House right. to, to do anything I would think as far left as they want to do, progressively as they want to do. Mm -hmm. It's going to get through the House. The Senate is where it stops. Mm -hmm. And so they've got to come in and have some compromising. And I think looking at these funds and talking about saying, look, we want to pass a constitutional amendment that's going to give unbridled access. Because look, one of my complaints has always been, we did a constitutional, we did a raid on the permanent fund with the constitutional amendment under Governor Richardson. I think it was 1% or something we took to bolster education. And I said, from the day we started talking about it, it, you know, I know I was like Nostradamus, it came to fruition. Whatever we took out of the permanent fund, we just lowered what we put in education from the discretionary dollars. So we really didn't do anything to help education. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to start putting these things out there, rating permanent funds, doing things like that, I think you got to have some tie-ins to say, listen, you can't stop the funding you're having now. The governor, I think most importantly, wants to get something done. Look, we're, we're an instant gratification society. No longer do we look at things for eight years to get things done. People are going to look back 90 days from now and say, what have you done? And if she can say, look, I was able to get $300 million, put it in aside in an early childhood development fund, the children's fund, and that's what we're going to call it, and boy, we're going to make great steps, I think check the box, things are good. Justine, the idea that, uh, you know, the governor really talked about a lot of educational opportunities out there for folks, and I didn't hear much or anything about trades. I mean, we all want kids to go to college. My kids are in college. There's no disagreement about that. But did she meet New Mexicans halfway about where we are? You know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah, I think you're mm -hmm. right. There are a couple big things that I saw missing from the speech, and one mm -hmm. was that whole discussion. You know, every kid is not going to go all the way through university, and every kid is not going to get a professional degree, and not mm -hmm. every kid should or wants to. Mm -hmm. So we didn't talk about that at all, and also about rural New Mexico, with mm -hmm. the exception of... You know, we have all this money that thank you so much for, for bringing out of the land in the form of oil and gas and, and mineral riches that we're going to spend, mainly in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Thank you so much. Thank you for everybody coming from Texas to, you know, to, to do the work to, mm -hmm. to, to bring the money forward. Um, there, there was not a lot of talk of rural New Mexico. And, and I think that, that um, approach of hers is really borne out in her polling numbers. I mean, you see her near 50% now. We talked about this this time last year when, when she was taking on the sheriffs and, and, and really kind of running up, running at odds with um, a lot of people, a lot of conservative Democrats, a lot of veterans, a lot of people all over rural New Mexico, middle of the road folks who do not like her approach on um, gun reform. And, and she notably did not, I'm sure we'll talk about that. She didn't talk about that at all in her speech. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that was 
that was notably absent. That goes right right in line with the trades sure. conversation. You know, what can we do in different parts of the state to help kids um, and to help grow these, these areas? But as we worked last year to improve health and welfare of New Mexicans, others were working to deprive them of both. And I'm talking about the criminal violence that is far too prevalent in our great state. Now, let's all agree that the days of hardened, violent, repeat offenders not doing any real time, getting unwarranted second and third and fourth chances because our system is too broken to hold people accountable, that those days must unequivocally end, and they must end now. We have to draw a line. The Mexicans are sick and tired of seeing predators circle in and out of custody, never facing the full force of law. I am too. Here's the fact. Dangerous, repeat offenders have got to be in jail. If you are terrorizing our communities again and again, we have nothing to talk about. You must be stopped and held accountable. And we have a chance in this session to come together as a state and put together the best practices so that we're both smart and tough on crime. We can do both. Everybody, every policymaker, every level of government has to be on board. This year we launched as a state the Fugitive Apprehension Unit. We sent state police officers to help support local police efforts in Albuquerque, in Valencia County, in Alamogordo, and down on the border. And under my budget proposal, we will fund 60 new state police officers and better pay for new recruits. We'll give them the time and support they need to make meaningful connections with the communities that they serve all across New Mexico and to keep them safe. And I'm also proposing stiffer penalties for gun, and drug and human trafficking to keep the purveyors of those particular kinds of evil off our streets longer. Background checks, uh, red flag laws, all of these have pretty, uh, the majority of New Mexicans, especially given what's going on in the country, they support them. Now, right. there's going to be very conservative special interests. Frankly, none of those sheriffs are supported her anyway for governor. Like, uh, so why, you know, sort of, uh, you could say she could at least try to maybe offer a fig leaf. But at the end of the day, if you, a lot of people support this governor because they expected bold policy. And I think in the first year, she very much did that in, on a lot of fronts. Uh, I guess the big point that I that I was trying to make earlier was that I, I feel like she's kind of moving back more toward the center, not on the gun issue. I think it was bold for her to continue to say, look, you know, uh, if law enforcement, by the way, if law enforcement and family members think that this should be addressed, then I think we ought to be supporting them in terms of removing weapons from, from situations where there could be really, really tough circumstances. Every politician has, have, has to have room to grow a little bit. You're not the same person you are two years after the, when you first get into office. Do you right, sense you learn some? You got to work with people to get things done. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Do you sense on the law and order stuff uh, some growth? Not growth sounds diminishing, well, but you know some change in the governor on law enforcement things and law and order. I mean the fugitive apprehension law. I mean, there's lots of things out there that may not. Well, have remember been, we're two years in mm -hmm. to a four-year term, mm -hmm. so this is a moving picture. And when you even when you look at the this 
state of the state address and this moment in time as a snapshot. Remember, there are the fiscal issues. There is the law enforcement issue. Uh, there, are, there is the cannabis issue. There is the gun control issue. And you might be able to make progress on the gun control issue by giving a little bit on another issue. It's a composite picture. And the, all the pieces are moving. And so maybe if you show you, maybe if you gain a few allies on the, on the criminal justice side, uh, from the sheriffs, then maybe you're going to make a little progress over here. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's uh, that's the art of politics, mm -hmm. uh, and and you get better as you as you grow art into it. Art of the it. deal, right? Is that art of the deal, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think what she may be realizing is, if you look at the top line numbers, like Eric is saying, maybe it's maybe 65, 70 percent in favor of the red flag legislation. The, the folks who are opposed to it, those are hard nose, And those are people who, if you go against them on the gun issue, they are not going to be with you on anything. Mm -hmm. And you, you have lost them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what the governor may be realizing, and maybe why she isn't talking about this, and maybe why she's trying to re reformulate her message a little bit, is we have disproportionately very a Hispanic uh, veteran population here. We have mm -hmm. a lot of veterans. We have huge rural areas. We have a lot of gun owners. And so she's got to be really careful about how she calibrates that or the other stuff, she's going to lose right. on the other stuff. And right. so I think that was a calculated decision. Mm -hmm. And maybe she's not pulling back when you look at the legislation, but she's got to change the tenor of her conversation about but it. But I think, I think Eric makes, I think Justine made a great point mm -hmm. that I, and it, it kind of adds to my disagreement with Eric, which is shocking, is that, you know, <laughs> Susanna Martinez at this time, the economy was tanking. Mm -hmm. You know, she was out there talking about driver's licenses, for you know, taking back driver's license for illegal immigrants, talking about taking on the president of the United States and Barack Obama, who was out there advocating for the the you know the the, the uh, Real ID Act and all kinds of stuff was going on, and she didn't have the money, and she was still you know 65 percent. You got you got Governor Luan Grisham, who's got all this money. There's no lack of being able to do new things. You know, when you meet the governor and you get to know her, she's actually a, a nice person, good person, easy to get along with. Mm -hmm. And here she is at hovering below 40 to 50 percent. Um, you know, I think it's I think a lot of it has to do. You know, I, I think the question is what happened in the election that hasn't translated into the daily things? Well, the election is an easy question. Mm -hmm. It was her opponent. I mean, right, it was right. easy to have a high favorable sure. against against her opponent. Now she's having to do the hard work, which is figure out a way, like Justine said, how do you balance getting cannabis? I think there's a reason to Justine's point where she talked a lot about rural New Mexico right. with cannabis, economic development, and didn't bring up red flag laws because red flag laws are gonna be overly opposed in all of rural New Mexico. But if you can start having the ability to negotiate, um, things are gonna come out. Look, there's things, if you look at some of the pre-filed bills uh, this year that I think are pretty interesting that she didn't talk about and we're not talking about, they've got some uh, some bills to deal with electric cars and power transmission oh, yeah. stuff. You know, what you would consider kind of the green energy stuff. They, Republicans are sponsoring this year. Mm -hmm. You got Neville out of there, you got Woods that are doing some of these things. I mean, these are, these are bills that five years ago, Republicans were like, you've lost your mind. <laughs> and so so she's brought some of those guys over mm -hmm. to carry some legislation uh, in plans that she's looking at, which I think is is pretty interesting. But I think it just goes to Justine's point. You know, let's talk about this issue over here while we debate about this stuff I want to get done over here. Right. And let's let's kind of get it figured out. Interesting. I want to go around the table, get some last thoughts from everybody, everyone. Everyone. I'll start with you, Eric. In the context of where she was getting into office, what 
this first year has left off and where she wants to go with this next year. What's your summation of all that? Well, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I think um, many of us, myself included, were surprised at how bold she was in terms of, if you want to call it progressive or working family type legislation, really going after, you know, increasing the minimum wage, some pretty bold stuff on gun reform, a um, lot of willingness to spend and invest in key areas. And I think many of us were very, very pleasantly surprised at how much she was willing to take on those fights. I do think in the second year, for a couple of reasons, one is, you know, her, I think her political mentor very much has been Bill Richardson, who also did the same thing, you know, did some bold stuff to Didi's point and then sort of like, okay, I better start sort of having a little bit more of a balanced sort of there's something for, for the more moderate folks. But also, I don't want to lose the point, this is an election year. Right. And, um, and the other thing we haven't talked about is a lot of these conservative uh, state senators, Dem Democrats are facing opposition and she has decided she's going to try to work with Senator Smith, who's who's been like uh, in the Democratic Party is the least is the least you know especially among progressive folks is the least liked senator. We feel like he's uh, very much the problem for not taking care of some of these structural problems we have. So I think the other thing that's happening in year two that might be different in year three is that uh, some of this has to be deferred. There's also some policies that I, I think might might sort of uh, uh, appease folks like Smith. Well, I think the governor is very pragmatic. Yeah. She's grown up in government. Mm -hmm. She built her career in government. And I think she is, she knows all these relationships really mm -hmm. well. She knows the system really well. And now mm -hmm. it's time for her to figure out what will play to a larger audience and how to make big change mm -hmm. statewide, dealing with the business community, dealing with people who have different social and cultural views than maybe she does and mm -hmm. maybe her staff does. And so I think it's really a critical moment for her, could be an inflection point for her administration. The governor urged lawmakers to think not just about what to do right now, but about how changes made today can impact future generations. The governor talked about smart spending, and we asked NMIF correspondent Gwyneth Dolan to explore what lawmakers think responsible budgeting looks like and to check in on concerns about open government. We're showing at 8.30 in the morning. The state has $800 million in new money, and the governor has big plans for new and expanded programs. I'm here with Senator George Munoz. You've been through this many times. Are you concerned that when the price of oil drops, which it will eventually, that the state might not be able to honor some of those new commitments? Deeply concerned because we've seen this before. We've seen what happens in a recession through 09 and 010, and we're barely back recovering right now. And the, and the thing that has to, most important is it's one-time money. So if you take one-time money and use it, it's gone. Our reoccurring money is only up by $250 million. And so how do we best use one-time money for long-term fixes and create sustainability? Because in 10 and 11, we cut about $1.5 out of the budget. And it's very hard. It hurts deep, and it's hard to recover from. So do you think with some of this surplus, you want to spend it in these one-time ways and not build recurring programs? Well, we want, we want to put as much as we can in our reserves. That's the first thing we need to do, shore up everything we have in our reserves, uh, spend it on one-time money, strategically placed, where everybody can re get a benefit. Well, I was going to ask you about the Opportunity Scholarship. The governor wants free college. This would be recurring money. Um, another analysis, the LFC said it would be $50 million. Does this uncertainty be about that cost worry you? The uncertainty about the free college worries me about what happens to institutions. 
because we create winners and losers. And so when we create those winners and losers, where are kids going to go? They're going to naturally go to the four-year universities, and the junior colleges are going to shrink up. Um, the dollar amount, I mean, somebody's got to get a hard number, um, and we've got to cap tuition costs. Because we've seen that with the lottery scholarship, is all of a sudden we paid for college, and the institutions increased tuition. Well, we've been talking about fixes for the lottery scholarship for several years. Should we do that first? We should. We should fix the programs we have so they work correctly, and then we should move on to what we need to do. Was a navigator on the Flying Fortress, and he came to navigate. Senator White, I'm going to talk to you about the Opportunity Scholarship. Sure. Kind of a big uh, amount of money, but it's an uncertain amount of money. Is the risk of that uncertainty worth the reward? Well, let me tell you where we're at on that. Uh, we don't agree with using the money for scholarships. Uh, we think we ought to put that in selected areas. You know, we're trying to get more nurses, trying to get more doctors. So on the legislative side, we're more interested in kind of paying that in a targeted area to scholarships that already exist out there and maybe even supplementing the lottery scholarship, which you know is right now it's about 60% of tuition. It used to be 100%, but when we start giving free things to everybody, what happens is the tuition went up, everybody started enrolling in college, enrollment went up, and the fund is no longer totally solvent right now because of that. So if we're going to put the money into it, rather than creating a new program, we would like to fund the existing programs with that money. Same amount of money, but just in different directions. And the problem is if you create a new program, then you've got to continue to fund it every year after year after year. And we're very worried of whether that revenue stream is going to be able to continue that we have right now. But you do yeah. have some new ideas for what to do with this surplus money. You want to give some of it back to the taxpayers? Well, that's one of my underlying ideas this year is let's give some back to the taxpayer. It's a great year to do that. A uh, couple of ways to do that. We can, uh, there's the military exemption that's been out there before. In a couple of years, we've talked about that and said, wait till we have a, a good time and when we've got the money to do it, maybe this is the year. Uh, I would like to also exempt the social security taxation, which is kind of a double taxation. You may, you're taxed on that money before you put it in. You get your gross receipts tax, uh, or your gross receipts, and you're taxed on that, and then they take the Social Security out of it, and then you receive it 20, 30, or 40 years later, and you're taxed on it again. So we're looking at trying to exempt that in the state of New Mexico. The yeah. governor talked about fiscal responsibility in her speech this week. I know that resonates uh, with a lot of folks. Um, the state employees' pension fund is in trouble, big trouble. Um, is shoring up that pension fund, should that be a bigger priority than new programs? Well, let me say a couple things. I, I would say it's in big trouble. Uh, it's not going to affect current retirees and probably retirees for the next 20 or 30 years. It's a matter of can we fund that type of retirement program that people are going to retire 20 or 30 years from now. So that's kind of the thing we want to make sure we can do. Uh, so is it a big problem? I don't know if it's a big problem, but it needs some help. It needs some changes. Uh, the sooner we make the changes, the better funding that program is going to be. So yeah, I think we ought to do that. It's a priority in the legislative session or the legislature, and it's a priority for the governor, and I think we're going to try to make some changes there to help that, uh, that fund. Children are at the forefront of many of the issues we're talking about this legislative session. Last year, the legislature created a task force to look at how the state can better protect children in danger. I'm here with Representative Kelly Fajardo. 
Representative, we've all seen these terrible headlines. People are invested in how this task force goes. How is it working out? Um, that's a great question. So as you know, the task force was established last year. They got a late start, which was a concern of mine to begin with. They started in October. The marijuana task force was already ending before we got started. When we did get started, we had a really rough start, even getting the initial meeting off the ground. Um, it changed abruptly, less than 24 hours after the meeting happened. The first meeting was open to the public. It was a little chaotic. Um, since then, all of the meetings since have been closed to the public. They've also been closed to us as legislators. And but as the secretary said all these meetings were going to be public. Correct. Correct. And that's a big problem. Um, you know, my understanding is there was a vote or there was a decision made to close these. I'm being told by task force members they're the ones who are contacting me concerned that these meetings are closed. We actually had a state legislator drive all the way from Eunice to Albuquerque to attend one of these meetings and as a state legislator he was not permitted to attend. What is the public missing out on if the public can't go? Well, so the task force is, is a group of stakeholders to really take a deep dive into CYFD. We know there's problems. We can't fix these problems unless we know how, how, how to deal with it. You know, and I don't know of any other task force that, that would be closed and why they would be closed. And even if for some reason the Attorney General comes back and says they should be closed, you know, the, the, they've made a decision also to move these meetings within, within less than 24 hours notice. The last meeting was moved from Albuquerque to Santa Fe with less than 24 hours notice to all the task force members. We had members who were not able to attend and then the meeting got canceled entirely because since it was moved to Santa Fe we had a snow day. So if the Attorney General says it's legal to do it the way they're doing now, will you ask the Governor to do it differently? Absolutely, absolutely. We really, This is important and this is important because these are our kids. You know, and the one thing I want to make very clear, the problems that we have with CYD is not the current administration's. They inherited a problem. Our secretary inherited a problem, and we all know that. But we can't fix it unless we can all get together, all have a seat at the table, and start um, having these conversations. We're going to keep a close eye on good government issues this session as a part of the Your New Mexico Government Project. That's a partnership with newsrooms across the state to bring you closer to the people who represent you and make sure you have access to them. At the Capitol for New Mexico in Focus, I'm Gwyneth Doland. Public education is the largest portion of the state budget each year. New Mexico spends billions on its schools, but not always with the results it wants. In 2018, a state judge said New Mexico hasn't been providing an equitable education for English language learners, native and low-income students. That's the Yazi Martinez case, and that decision drove spending last year in the form of money for extended learning and teacher raises. Is it enough? Joining me now is Charles Goodmacher. He's working with the NEA Teachers Union. He worked for the NEA Teachers Union for years. He's here on behalf of a group called Transform Education New Mexico that's been monitoring the state's response to that court decision. Now, we saw the teacher pay component of that last year, and again, raises are proposed for this year, Charles. Are they enough? No, they're not enough, okay. unfortunately. Um, the state knows the teacher shortage has enormous consequences for our students. Mm -hmm. uh, the state knows we need to improve education, get higher quality applicants, and, uh, and yet the, the raises are much appreciated that are suggested, but they're not enough to really change that big picture of the teacher shortage. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the plaintiffs in the case said they didn't feel the state had keyed in on important parts of, 
delivering a sufficient education to underserved students. Are policymakers not getting the message at this point, or do the changes that have been made need time to work through the system? Because we hear that a lot, that just needs a little more time. Well, I, I do think that the policymakers understand the severity of the problem mm -hmm. uh, and of the opportunities to resolve the problem. And the Transform Education Coalition has proposed a large number of bills, um, fewer this year than last year, but, uh, but to directly address the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the problem in sufficiently funding the schools, as we would like that to happen, mm -hmm. is not a lack of awareness of the need, but the political compromises that have to happen among the legislators and the governor's office when they have to consider all the other needs of the state. Right. Is that a function of not having a formally stated plan in your view? Is that part of the problem here? That is a part of the problem, that mm -hmm. there's no comprehensive plan for reform. There are some bills that would move us towards creating a comprehensive plan, mm -hmm. um, and that would certainly be a big step forward. Yeah. I'm curious about the impact of how this current administration has moved away from uh, much of the Martinez administration's evaluation structure and process. Yes. Has that muddied the waters a little bit or is that actually something that's getting, breaking through the clouds and getting a little more clarity? Actually? No, that's been breaking through the clouds. Okay. In your analogy, uh, teachers, most teachers across the state are extremely happy about that. It's, you know, the teacher shortage problem is caused by the two parts. One is low pay for the very difficult work done, mm -hmm. even intrinsically rewarding as it is. Um, so changing the teacher evaluation has made the working conditions a lot better for teachers throughout the state. Mm -hmm. Just so I'm clear, are there any specific bills you can point to that are out there right now that have been pre-filed or being talked about that would help the situation a little bit? Yeah, um, there's several. There's a mentorship bill, I think mm -hmm. it's HB 62, mm -hmm. um, House Majority Whip um, or Leader. Cheryl Williams Stapleton's the prime sponsor. There's other educators that are sponsors of that bill. Mm -hmm. That would provide money, $2,000 a year for mentors mm -hmm. to assist newer teachers uh, enter the profession. Major problem that impacts the teacher shortages, that when teachers are not very well prepared right. and provided that ongoing assistance in their first couple of years, they, they don't make it very long in the profession. Those who do get that ongoing support become successful. That's well documented. That's been out there for a lot of years. What, yes. What's your sense of that? Is, is that just to start the 2000? And would you like to see that in your organization, see that grow over time? Uh, be, yeah, yes, mm -hmm. but 2000 would be a wonderful start, yeah. very important. Currently, there is a law in the book that districts have to provide mentorship programs, but there's mm -hmm. no funding specifically for that. So mm -hmm. that bill is really important. Um, you know, on, on educator compensation, of course, we want to raise that that part of the equation while the working conditions are getting a little better, um, also to attract more people in a, into the profession. And so, um, you know, we're aiming for a 10% raise. Speaker mm -hmm. Egoff call, uh, supported that call. Um, Legislative Finance Committee came with 3%, the governor with 4%, and we saw yesterday uh, educators, or the Education Study Committee, mm -hmm. um, both senators and House members, uh, had a um, spoke very strongly that they felt that their suggestions for the budget were not included in mm. the LFC budget you know, by their fellow legislators. Right. So the Educator Study Committee um, legislators are calling for a six percent raise, which is certainly very reasonable and would be, we think, enough to say here we are investing two years in a row substantially in teachers. Right. 
I'm curious about the numbers of students that are uh, in those teacher training programs as it stands now. Is there any, is any sense of that? Is there a hard number out there? Um, it's still extremely low. Yeah. My own niece uh, graduated from UNM education program, the December graduate. There were 20-something education graduates. Well, the engineering grads and the, so many, all the other departments had many, many more. Right. So it's a real problem that, that the, the pipeline isn't filling up. And so uh, we, we support a number of measures to, you know, to change that picture, mm -hmm. uh, including there's another bill, um, House Bill 84, Representative Figueroa from Albuquerque, a, a, uh, also an educator, is the sponsor of. And that would reduce a small bit the burden employees uh, in public schools have for their share of their health insurance premiums. Mm. Um, there's inequity, if you will, between state employees and school employees. Um, Obviously, we don't want to change, sure. impact the state employees. We think you know that's good and they do important work, but we want to lift up the education employees so that the cost uh, burden for their health insurance is less. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about charter schools a little bit. There's yes. always a lot of talk out there about equity, equity councils, a lot of different things out there. Tell us about what the situation is for your group when it comes to charter schools and how they get in balance with everybody else as well. Uh, well, Transform Education New Mexico uh, we're about educating the students. Right. So whether it's a charter school or it's a traditional public school, that's not uh, a central concern for the Transform Coalition. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm curious, what are you, for your group, what are you looking for for signs out there, out there, meaning Santa Fe, uh, specific signals that will tell you that, you know, we're on our way successfully to meet Marti Mar this situation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yazi Martinez, what, do you, what are you looking for out of this session necessarily? Well, looking for a great deal of uh, uh, the specific solutions, like I mentioned, that address the teacher pipeline for one, yeah. but also um, uh, in terms of recruiting people, encouraging people to get into education. It's critical that we get more of our young students, you know, high school now, who are in the communities to want to become educators so that they come back to their own communities and help their brothers, sisters, cousins, young, young mm -hmm. siblings, and so on, mm -hmm. um, get a good quality education. Mm -hmm. um, as we know, Judge Singleton passed away, uh, yes. regrettably, and you know, Judge Matthew Wilson is now on board with the case. Do you sense any appreciable change because of that, or is things just status quo and we're working forward in spite of it all? Well, I'm not part of the legal team, okay. so I really don't have a personal insight. I, um, I'm not aware of any great concern mm -hmm. from the lawyers about that. Yeah. Well, the state is uh, considering giving underfunded districts a greater share of money they get under the federal impact mm -hmm. uh, and program. But the districts that get that aid serve Native students and the change will cost more, as we've all discovered. Is it a smart move for your group to yeah, yes, yeah. Transforms definitely supports this move Okay, um, because, well, everybody knows historically there's been a lot of under-resourcing uh, of our native communities um, and, and rural communities in general. There are some other just rural communities that are also impacted because of forest, <coughs> forest uh, land and other federal lands. Right. Um, so um, it, it is a great need and uh, we believe this would help redress some of the ongoing systemic problems that do tend to keep the keep student success down in our native communities right so there's also some bills other bills that would um, that, that would help um, that transform is solidly behind 
Uh, what would be some of those? Yeah, well, um, one of them would um, provide some, make available some of the extended learning mm -hmm. monies mm -hmm. to the tribal education departments or the tribal governments to provide their own culturally and linguistically appropriate educational resources mm. to their students during the summertime. Mm -hmm. What's been the reaction to that proposal? That sounds interesting. We've talked about that a lot here yeah. in this studio. Has, has that right. been well received? So it, it hasn't been heard yet. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's just, just some individual responses. It, um, it runs up against the problems of the money. Uh, so it's that those programs they're specifically aimed to build up the capacity in our tribal communities mm -hmm. and the schools serving the tribal communities mm -hmm. um, most of them are not included in the budgets that were have been proposed so far mm -hmm. Charles Goodmacher transform, transform education New Mexico thank you for sitting down with us we really appreciate your time absolutely thank you Gene hope to see you again anytime New Mexico's legislature is the nation's only true citizen legislature. The women and men who serve as senators and representatives don't get paid for their work, and the legislature meets for just a few weeks every year. That means many lawmakers have to lean on pros to better understand the issues, and the pros are often lobbyists. How much influence do lobbyists have in the roundhouse? New Mexico Ethics Watch went to find out. Here's NMIF senior producer Matt Grubbs with Kathleen Sabo, who leads the group. Kathleen Sabo, thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. You're welcome. So the 55-page report, um, lobbyists and their, outs and their outsized influence in New Mexico, um, you found that it is a profound influence. Just explain that to me to start. Uh, it's, it's profound in a couple of different ways. It's profound because it's, it permeates everything up in uh, Santa Fe during the session is profound because of the level of spending, uh, which includes contributions and expenditures by lobbyists, and is profound by the impact that it actually has. Um, we talked a little bit about, um, as we were sort of chatting about the report, about the fact that this is a citizen legislature. Mm -hmm. um, there aren't professional legislators, um, at least not in name. Um, what does that mean for how lobbyists interact with the system? Well, it means that there's a great dependence on lobbyists uh, as experts in a lot of ways because staff comes in seasonally, they do their best, but they're not experts on a particular tax matter or a housing matter or a banking matter or, you know, cannabis. And so the lobbyists are there to offer their expertise. It's, it's a huge way that it impacts a citizen legislature. Um, and legislators are, are willing to lean on lobbyists or, or to go to them? You know, one thing to understand, and, and you know, I worked up there at the Capitol and, and other authors of the report, Dee Dee Feldman was a former senator, Tony Ortiz worked up at the Legislative Council Service. So we all understand it's a collegial atmosphere. It's a great atmosphere. It's a homey, sort of folksy atmosphere. And everyone knows each other. Like if I go up there tomorrow, it'll be like going to a high school reunion. It'll be fun. And so there's just this informal, more than anything, hey, come on in. Come on into the office. You know, explain this to me. I'm, you know, I'm having a little trouble grasping it. it. Might happen fairly frequently. So it's not. It's not. Um, it might be calculated, but it's it's necessary and it's helpful. Okay. Um, is it is it illegal? It's not illegal. No. 
you know, that's the thing to understand. I mean, what we report in this report is going on in plain sight, and for the most part, is totally within our pretty lax lobbying laws. Um, you followed uh, specific efforts, specific industries. Mm -hmm. um, anecdotally, what did you find? What are some of the more interesting things? Well, so the, the subtitle to the report is Tales of Film, Firearms, and Fumes. So the alliteration is nice, but it's also, <laughs> you know, clues you in to what we, uh, what we looked at. We looked at cannabis, we looked at firearms, we looked at vaping and tobacco. Uh, because these, as we, as we sort of narrowed things down, we started out with a greater range of topics. These were the ones that were most interesting. So do you want me to talk about one particular one? Is yeah, it, absolutely. Pick one. So the one, that, the one that got me the most, and each of us, you know, authors sort of had a, a different take on it, was the firearms issue. Okay. Uh, because uh, a special interest spent, you know, close to half a million dollars uh, to shift the composition of the house. And they got what they paid for. And so that's every town for gun safety. And they put, they contributed close to $400,000 to candidates. And they got candidates elected who supported the background check bill. And so it passed overwhelmingly in the House, which emboldened the Senate. It was a squeaky, you know, vote in the Senate, 22 to 20. But the background check bill passed. It had, you know, it had failed consistently. Sure. But, but, you know, and the tide had to be right. I mean, I don't think any group could go in and say, I'm going to spend this money, I'm going to change the composition of the House. I mean, there was a public, you know, outcry for some kind of gun control by a lot of people, not by others, but by a lot. So that's the one that, that stood out to me. And, I, you know, and we could tell you... Uh, anecdotes about each one of those things. So ask away. Sure. sure. Well, I, you know, the interesting thing um, with every town for gun safety is um, that they're up against the NRA. Mm -hmm. And we traditionally think of the NRA as being the deep pocketed ones. Um, but in this case, it was every town. And they weren't necessarily lobbying on that issue they were campaigning for candidates who supported that. And so they're really getting further upstream. They are. They did lobbying as well. And, you, okay, and, sure, and yeah. it's important to note who the founder of Everytown is. One of them is Michael Bloomberg. You know, so it's, it's, there's a lot of money behind it. The NRA took a different tactic this time. You know, they're, they're deep pocketed, but they chose to use uh, local actors. And I don't mean actors in the sense of, you know, people who do plays thespians. or movies. Yeah, right, exactly. thespians, right. Uh, but uh, officials the Sheriff's Association, to come in and vehemently and vocally oppose the background check bill and say, we're not going to enforce it. This isn't going to happen. Not in my county, not in my town, not whatever. And then actually after the fact to say, we're not going to enforce it. And then there was a nice little action by the attorney general saying, of course you are. But that, you know, and, and the other thing, so they did that. The NRA uh, brought in people to take action and to try to rally. But every town did that as well in a sense that they got moms uh, demanding gun sense, action on gun sense. And I'm sorry, I know I sort of mangled that name. It's <laughs> moms for gun sense or okay, something like okay, that. Sure. Um, they knocked on doors. They knocked on a ton of doors. Uh, so there was, there was multifaceted effort going on in the gun control area. Okay. Um, as sort of a, um, an offshoot of that effort, 
we've ended up with a much more progressive House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. um, the kinds of people who were supporting this legislation, at least that every town identified, um, also support more progressive things. Right. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, offshoot. So the, the conventional wisdom, right, of, of lobbyists um, is that they sort of thrive on inside knowledge and they're always okay. standing outside the committee room door and you know, grabbing a legislator. Um, is that still how it happens? It's, it's how it happens in a lot of ways, and we describe how that happened with the tobacco-related uh, uh, products here in our report, where there were last-minute changes in a conference committee to taxation of both cigars and vaping products, and that couldn't have happened if people didn't know how to how to do play that game. And to, to interrupt a little bit, um, a conference committee is after a piece of legislation has passed both houses. Yes. Um, and it's the last step before taking it to the members and saying, okay, this is what we hashed out. You all agree. Great. It goes to the governor. Yes. There's, so there's very little public input at this, at this point. Right. And there is usually an opportunity for people to review, but this was last minute, which is how a lot of things unfortunately happen up there. And and a 17-page report that came out about an omnibus tax bill that a lot of people didn't have the time to read. And so there it was, uh, you know, taxes on vaping products reduced from 25% to 12.5%, taxes on cigars, any, any, uh, any price of a cigar, any level of cigar, 50 cents cap. Okay. So that's, you know, that was, that was lobbyists who knew how to do things at the last minute and get what they wanted. Sure. Um, is that is that necessarily bad? I mean, they're lobbyists for everything. You know, we think of sort of the quote unquote sin taxes on things like alcohol and tobacco, um, but there are lobbyists for um, you know for social programs, for you know early childhood education, all sorts of stuff. Uh, how how do we? I guess how did you find the public conceives of lobbyists or lawmakers conceive of lobbyists, and are, are we are we getting it right? You know, surprisingly, and I'll tell you this, I went and spoke with some of the staff I knew up at the Roundhouse sort of off-season. What do you think about changes? And they said, things should just stay the way they are. It's working great. So that's how, that you know, and I, I'm not going to identify particular people, but I was a little surprised by that. I don't know what the public thinks. You know, we did a Facebook Live video. I talked about every town, and I said, what, you know, what, what would you say? You know, oh, that's business as usual, or be like, what? How could how could they do that? Or it's okay if it's my cause, you know. So I don't oh, right. I don't know what the public how the public perceives it. I mean, it's just it's been such a part of our system. And you and I spoke a little bit. I mean, there are great efforts now to reform the New Mexico legislature, and this is this is you know part and parcel of that. You know, how do we professionalize things? Can we reduce the influence of lobbyists? And we say yes, yes, we can. Yeah. Um, one of the issues that you identified was um, the revolving door. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we have a citizen legislature. They receive per diem reimbursement for miles, things like that. And sometimes that can be substantial, but um, they're not paid professional legislators. Right. They're not full time. And as you said, really, neither is the staff with a, with a few notable exceptions. Um, so we oftentimes see staff or former uh, um, legislators, excuse me, yeah. um, returning to the Capitol as lobbyists. Um, is that something that should be regulated? Is it something that's an issue? We think it's an issue. 
uh, because, you know, the, think about the level of influence, the outsized influence, someone you've just worked with, you've been a compatriot to in the legislature, all of a sudden they're at your door. You know, and so, and uh, the idea of a moratorium, I believe there's one on the federal level, and it has been floated numerous times. I think Senator Jeff Steinborn has been the chief proponent of that, a two-year moratorium. That gives a chance for the House composition to change and really for there to be less influence. And, you know, I know there's an argument like, hey, we deserve, you know, to sort of reap the benefits of what we've done, but it doesn't seem ethical. Okay, and, and you end up with people who are able to um, perhaps push something through that they wouldn't normally if they didn't have those personal connections? That, you know, you can only look at anecdotal evidence. Sure. No one's going to tell you, you know, having Senator Richard Romero the year after he was the majority leader or floor leader uh, come into my office made a difference. Now, I don't think anybody's going to tell you that, but you know, you see the way people greet each other. You know that they have commonalities. We can only surmise that that makes a difference. Um, in just the minute that we have left, what do we know about how lobbyists spend their money, and what do you think we should know? Well, what we know is what they spend. We don't always know what they spend it on. Okay. So, for instance, uh, there might be a very general, you know, took legislators to dinner. We don't know, was this so about a particular bill? So we don't require them to say, yes, I spent this money in pursuit of bill, House Bill 356, right. legalization. The other thing we don't know is how much they're compensated. And I had a, um, a national group tell me, we don't follow New Mexico because they're one of the few states that doesn't uh, reveal make lobbyists reveal how much they're compensated. And we think that's important to know too. So those are the things we ought to know, okay. some of them. Sure. <laughs> well, there's much more in it, 55-page report. We'll be sure to link it online. But thank Excellent. you so much thank for you, coming Matt. in. All right, appreciate it. Absolutely. All right.